0: That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
1: Listen to Constant Wonder
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex and I are very excited. We're always excited. Who have we got on today? We have someone today who's just declared that they don't know anything about history, but there's a reason... It's because our guest today specializes in prehistory, which we really need to do more about. We have Matt Pope with us today, who is a prehistorian, as we've just said, um, who specializes in Neanderthal behavior. So I thought it'd be really good to um, find out more about before ancient times. We had our dinosaurs one, but we haven't done anything from human history, have we, before like the Hellenistic period in ancient Egypt. So, Matt, welcome.
1: Thank you, it's wonderful to be invited and uh, kick off prehistory.
0: Oh, and your, your lockdown has not been uh, great has it? Uh, we've, we've been squeamish about uh, all I have about your eye operation before we started recording but yeah, how has it been for you?
1: I had a cataract operation about a year ago and it's just started going funny and I'm losing the vision in my right eye quite horrendously but doesn't matter, because all I've got to do is stare at screens all day, everything through a screen. So I'm I'm, I'm thinking of investing in an eye patch, and then at least... Uh, I'll oh,
0: be you could be a pirate prehistorian. <laughs> that would be good. And it, that would like add an air of mystery as well. Even if you can see out of that eye, I think you should go with the eye patch option.
1: How did it happen? I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I
0: don't want to talk about it. There was a sword involved, and, and the other guy looked worse at the end. That's all you need to say.
1: Can you um, stop saying can you start saying prehistory are
0: <laughs> oh no <laughs> that was this really is lame. Uh, that was really lame this is because we recorded on victorian humor and Alina is just empowered now to go on with horrible puns and conundrums she had such a good time recording that but you're here to talk to us about neanderthal people now tell us first of all because this was the first thing i learned alina when we were talking before about what we're going to talk about on here that we're not allowed to call them neanderthal man are we why not matt
1: right well i think once you start talking about neanderthal man you just bring with it so much baggage so aside from the fact that it's gendered and it instantly conjures up a particular image in your head it comes to a completely kind of arcane and archaic way of thinking about early humans and it comes from the 19th century where we had a tiny sample of, uh, of Fossil remains that came from particular places. So the fossils from the Neander Valley from Neanderthal were called Neanderthal man. There was Cro-Magnon man. There was Piltdown man from Sussex. We could talk about Piltdown later um, all of these were very specific things But because we're talking about such a large population, because we're talking about such a long uh, period of time, I like to kind of center that word in talking about Neanderthal people, Neanderthal populations. And, And as we'll hopefully explore today, it's impossible to say hardly anything about Neanderthals. They did this and they did that because they did so many different things in different times, different places.
0: Tell us, when were they around and where did they live?
1: Yeah, so um, Neanderthal people, um, we conceive of them today as as being a different species of human, but being very much human, very closely related to us. um, They have an evolutionary development. They have an evolutionary story, like every single species of human, like every single species on the planet. And if we want to look at their evolutionary beginnings, we want to see the first individuals that started to have the biological features, the anatomical features that look Neanderthal. We have to go back about 420,000 years, that's almost half a million years, to a small group of fossils. We don't have many representatives at this point in time, but we have a nice collection from a site um, called Atapuerca. In northern Spain. There was a cave there, a, a shaft called uh, Sima los Huesos, the, the pit of the bones, um, because alongside lots of bare bones, a really good collection of, uh, of, of human bones were, were found. And when the anatomy was looked at, they had features that looked very much like early Neanderthals. And then much closer to home, in, uh, in, in Kent, in, in Swanscombe, which is just the other side of the M25 on the south bank of the Thames, there was a big pit, gravel pit, um, which in the 1930s and 1950s produced fragments of bone of a another early Neanderthal, about the same time, 420,000 years. So we've got to imagine this species has been evolving for all that time. At the other end, we don't find any convincingly dated Fossil material of Neanderthals after say forty thousand years ago. That's comparatively, relatively recent. So for that period of time, 350, twenty thousand years, Neanderthal populations are there in Eurasia. And we find them from, from Siberia, Denisova Cave in um in central Siberia is about the furthest east. We find them. We find them all around the northern Mediterranean, Spain. Italy, into Greece, the Near East, Syria, Israel. Um, we don't find them any further um, south than, than the West Bank um, in, in the Near East. And we don't find them any further north than, than Wales um, and Pont Nowarth, which is a cave in North Wales, is the northwesterly limit of the Neanderthals. So if you think of Neanderthal populations as occupying Eurasia, on and off, well, to, to varying degrees for 420,000 years, then you can see this is this is a big population with a lot of time to do a lot of different things.
0: My mind, hang on, is just absolutely blown. So when Alina and I talk about history and when we envision History Hack, we're usually talking about a span of what, a maximum of about 10,000 years, Alina? Yep. And you're dealing with no wonder you don't. No wonder you look at history and go, "That ain't shit." You're dealing with nearly half a million years of development. Yeah. All right, my mind is certainly blown. Um, we're going to try and build up a bit of a picture of the Neanderthals in general terms. But like you say, it's such a wide. I I literally like my whole world has just turned. I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know where I am. Um, so let's try. Let's talk about in some general terms and see if we can build up a picture uh, generally of them. How did they communicate with each other? Did they talk?
1: Yeah, well, as we're going to find out today, there's very few definitive answers on any of these questions. We're dealing with a really complex, relatively impoverished and poorly preserved record. But let me run through the reasons why we generally think, yes, they, they could talk. First of all, we need to look at the kind of things that they're doing. They have complex behavior, cooperative behavior. They're doing things like organizing, uh, things like cooperative hunting, sending out groups to to do different tasks like foraging. They're they're organizing themselves in space and time in really quite complicated ways. And it's very hard to do that effectively without language, without concepts like (laughs) the future. The past where have you been where are we going to meet so we can see this complex behavior there if we look at their tools and their technology we see that compared to human species that came before we see a lot of innovations there that are about bringing different materials together um, so creating what we call the first composite tools things that would have a handle that would have uh, a working blade point or something that would have the bindings all of these things Um, kind of fit together as different concepts. You need to have a framework of kind of words to put them together. Then if we look at the anatomy, early reconstructions on the basis of poor fossil records, reconstructed the Neanderthal kind of thick, robust neck as not really having space for a nicely sort of a positioned larynx that would give them really good um, sort of vocal cord communication. And their relatively robust teeth, the way that their jaw kind of sort of moves, mid-face moves forward. Also, there were suggestions that it wouldn't be in a really good control over the tongue to to make vowels and consonants. Well. Modern reconstructions based on new fossil evidence show that actually the larynx and the hyoid bone, the bone that sits around the larynx, are really well positioned. And there's no reason why there couldn't be a range of, you know, really kind of different but complicated um, vocalizations. There's also one really important gene called FOXP2 that's implicated in language in, in modern humans. And although Neanderthals have a different variant, they do have Um, this language. And so looking at genetic markers, there's no reason why they shouldn't have it. So yeah, you know, it's part of why I very much consider them human. Everything they're doing speaks to them having concepts, having symbols, having ways of breaking the world down into little units and then building it up again in new ways. And that's what we do with words. Alex's mind is blown I can just hear it I can hear it so hang on that film
0: 10,000 BC was a load of rubbish then
1: I haven't watched it because I probably no, I know I think I I got
0: really really bored and turned it off because they did they Alina didn't they just run around grunting at each other
1: yeah pretty much yeah I know with things like that I'll just end up just shouting at the tv the whole way through so I tend to just avoid them I know I shouldn't
0: it's about no. as bad as making Alex watch a World War I-ish uh, uh, film or something, or
1: me, for yeah, example. Yeah, I
0: can't even. When someone say, oh, did you watch that? No, why? Because I'd just scream at myself and at the TV and no- and everyone would suffer. But no. no, so yeah, I'm pretty sure in that film that it consisted of a load of running around and grunting. There definitely wasn't signs of like intelligent behaviour. Or maybe I'd just have-, have made it worse in my mind than it actually was. But anyway, Alina... Do you know I'm what? Continue. I'm going to re-watch it tonight. and then I might actually as well, well. After the football, because there is anyway (laughs) so there are a lot of unknowns but what do we know about lifestyle what did it look what did what what did life look like for the neanderthals
1: on a day-to-day basis so let's start with homes first of all did they have them and were they in family groups Mm. yeah well this is something that i'm really interested in looking at and, and and have been have been looking at for a while which is when we start to see neanderthal populations emerge and we can see them you know looking anatomically quite distinct and we can see them doing the things that neanderthals do that we'll come on to we also see something else starting to happen regularly in the archaeological record and that's that we start to get places like caves like uh, the edges of uh, rock faces places we call rock shelters and some more kind of open air areas being preserved in the archaeological record and having a kind of a structure to them. I mean, we could talk about earlier prehistory, you know, another time where you're just dealing with basically accumulations of stone artefacts and animal bone. You know, there's before a million years ago, there's no good evidence of fire. There's no good evidence for home bases. There's no good evidence for sleeping areas. We don't know where people are living. We know where they're hunting. We know where they're eating food. We know where they're making tools. We have no idea where they're living before... 750,000 years ago, a million years ago. But suddenly, after half a million years ago, persistently in the archaeological record, we start to find these cave, rock, shelter, open-air sites. And they blow my mind because suddenly what we have are uh, areas where tools are being made. They tend to be quite restricted. You're making tools out of these sharp um, splinters of ray- absolutely razor sharp flint and other materials. You don't want them where you're sleeping, so they tend to be quite limited. You have areas where bones are being processed. We have places like you know, Cave of Tor Farage in Jordan, where there's big concentrations of the tiny silica bodies you get in grasses, suggesting they're bringing grasses into particular parts of the cave. It's very hard not to see that as some kind of bedding or sleeping area, especially as those grasses are found in places you don't find the sharp flint tools. But the most exciting thing that we start to get at this point in time, um, one of the earliest um, you know, good sites in, in Europe is actually from East Anglia, Beaches Pit. Um, it's an open air site, but we start getting it in caves, is fire, is hearths. Now, fire is probably something that's in, kind of discovered or invented or controlled a number of times in deeper prehistory, but it doesn't persist. It's very easy when you're dealing with very small populations over long periods of time for there to be invention and then those inventions to get lost. Um, you know, when, when a group that has mastered fire goes extinct or gets wiped out, the invention gets wiped out. But from this point in time, we get this persistent signature of fire and that transforms these caves these rock sh- shelters, into areas where you can cook, you can transform material, you can sit around, you can sleep sleep in between. You get some sites where you get these kind of alignments of, of fires with spaces in between where you can imagine, you know, a group of, say, 20 or 30 all sorting themselves out. And although these places aren't like what we find, you know, in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, where you're getting really established, constructed you know, homes and houses in, in sort of, you know, proto-urban situations, these places we can call homes. And we take that so for granted, that concept, the concept of having a place, even if it's only for a few weeks or a few months before moving on somewhere else, and Neanderthal's almost certainly seasonal, but having a place where when you're there, it's your, it's your address. It's the place you go back to at the end of the day. If you split up from the rest of the group to go on a small foraging mission or go off hunting, it's where you bring the food back to. If you're ill, if you're um, pregnant, if you're nursing small children, if you're old, you know, if you're dying, it's a place where you can be safe, where you can be looked after, where you can be left maybe even for short periods of time. And so for me, this is the big lifestyle transformation that we see amongst neanderthal populations we probably see it as well amongst our own species evolving in africa at the same time homo sapiens are going through the same evolutionary stages in terms of behavior but the neanderthal record is really vivid and shows it really well so
0: many questions uh families when you if if you've got bones and stuff can you see like relations between them or is that not possible to pick out i'm really interested to know if they had like family units or if it was just like a a herd mentality
1: okay well i mean at some point maybe bring on a geneticist to really go into the genetics i deal with the stone tools and but i can i can summarize some of the, Mm. the the genetic discoveries that are throwing a light on this so what we, what we seem to recognize is that Neanderthal groups um, are living in relatively isolated, relatively small groups. Okay? It's part of their fit to the landscape. And if you think about it, they are sitting at the top of the food chain. They're getting a lot of their nutrition from, from protein, from hunting. You cannot have loads of predators in, in one landscape. So they seem to fit in small, dispersed groups. Now, there does seem to be movement. Um, of genes and so people between these groups and focus on on one site that kind of showed a little window into that and that's a site called Alcidron in Spain where where the genetics show um that the males there are quite closely related they come from the same broad sort of maternal maternal line but the females there seem to come from from another group they're separate now this may suggest that you have movement of females from one group to another. This may be something about their networking. but Ooh, the overall... if they figured
0: out inbreeding, do you think?
1: But it's not inbreed. It's not, oh, whether they were aware of it. Well, generally speaking, you know, it is one thing that um, Neanderthals have stacked against them genetically, that there ah. are these relatively, you know, small gene pools. That Alcidron population showed um, a few uh you know congenital abnormalities that might suggest um you know the effects of of inbreeding but that movement of females is it something organized did they understand it was their society built in the way that there was that that sort of in you know culturally embedded movement i don't know at the moment we're only getting glimpses of it because we've got very limited windows but it's certainly interesting to think about it tell us what do they eat and drink well, this is where we can't sort of say Neanderthals did one thing, Neanderthals did, did, did another thing, because not only have we got such a big area of time and a big area of space, we're in a period of Earth's history where the climate is changing over long 100,000 year cycles. So, even somewhere, you know, I'm at a moment sat in, in, in southern Britain, you know, at some points in the last half million years, It would be even slightly warmer than it is now here at other points i'd be sat only a few tens of miles in front of the ice sheet and it would be completely uninhabited and neanderthals are moving all the time with these big hundred thousand year changes in climate when it gets cold they're moving further south closer to the mediterranean and when it gets warmer they're kind of spreading out into northern europe so they cover a lot of different ecosystems. They cover a lot of different biozones when they're at the edge of their range and they never get into the paleo Arctic. They never get into really cold conditions. They get into sort of areas and temperatures kind of consistent with Scandinavia today, Northern Scandinavia today. So in those times they're, they're largely surviving and dominating their uh, survival on hunting and getting access to, uh, a lot of nutrients through animals. Now we can see this chemically in their bones. Their bones have chemical signatures, isotope signatures, that suggest um, relatively little plant food, definitely um, no fish, lots of protein from particular types of animals. And we see them hunting reindeer, we see them hunting um, bison, we see them hunting red deer when it's slightly warmer. We also occasionally see large megafauna that around at the time so there's the woolly mammoth there's another type of mammoth called the steppe mammoth and the woolly rhinoceros and in warm periods a straight tusked elephant that was really happy in in europe and these things are dominating our understanding of what neanderthals are eating for the reason that we find the bones of them quite readily and we've got this signature of their protein but if they were to just eat meat if they were just eat meat like we imagine it they'd get really unhealthy really quickly so you know they're probably not after the things that we would parts of the body that we would roast on a on a, on a Sunday. They're, they're after the other material especially the fat the fat is their main uh, food source their main energy source and we see them stripping off all of the meat and breaking open the bone to get at things like bone marrow breaking open jaws, breaking open the skull to get at the brain, removing the tongue, maybe taking things like the internal organs, which are full of lots of really good nutrients. And Laura Buck and Chris Stringer and others have suggested that also, and this is something that happens in modern sort of pan-arctic areas, their stomach contents of these animals could also provide lots of plant nutrients as well. Partially digested plant nutrients. You think if you're living in an area where all that's really growing because it's so cold is shrubby vegetation and grass, that isn't something any human can really easily eat. But if the reindeer have been chewing it and partially digesting it or bison have been doing that, you can take those stomach contents. They're already chewed. They're probably really disgusting, but they're there as a really good food source.
0: Is there any evidence of like surprising evidence of things that they don't eat that we know we're around that they they're just not eating and also as well are they top of the food chain
1: yeah taking the first part first yeah definitely yeah um neanderthal populations show the top of the trophic tree um like most modern human populations after half a half a million years ago in terms of what they don't eat i mean before i gave very much the picture of what they're eating in very northern uh, uh, seasonal latitudes but recently there's a range of sites especially around the mediterranean that are starting to show that neanderthals had much more varied diets than we previously sort of characterized and we get evidence for the collection of shellfish and these are relatively late Neanderthals, say after 80,000 years ago, Um, we get from Vanguard Cave in Gibraltar, where there's lots of evidence for quite complex behaviour. We get them bringing things like monks, seal, porpoises, dolphins, into into the cave and butchering them. We don't, I I don't imagine for a second they're going out and hunting them. These might be animals that have been washed up on the shore and are being scavenged, but it shows that there's, connection with the sea, connection, um, a collection of uh, marine resources. um, uh, In Portugal we also get collection of things like crab and shellfish coming in. Other sites showing really good collection of plant foods. Now the thing about plant foods is that they're so poorly preserved. You know bone will fossilize if it's in a limestone cave. Plant foods will require really good anaerobic conditions where Oxygen is kept out or maybe they burnt to a point where they're so charred that they just survive in the archaeological record because no bacteria is going to attack them once they're they're charred. So at these few sites where we're getting those plant remains, we can see they appear to be collecting seeds, um, appear to be collecting sometimes things like acorns, things like hazelnuts, southern uh, Iberia pine nuts are being collected and the pine cones seem to be roasted to release the pine nuts so you know possibly really quite diverse and really nice mediterranean diets happening and why this is important is that previously things like smaller game collection of shellfish processing of plant foods these were things that only our species used to be seen as as undertaking things that required more processing a bit more thought a bit more understanding um and now we're getting those sites we're seeing at least you know later neanderthals are engaging this kind of behavior big part in terms of their diet
0: oh my mind is so blown i've got so you've got the whole afternoon for this right because i've got so many (laughs) questions um right health and anatomy and things like how long did they live for um the, like in terms of things like uh, functionality of their bodies, is it the same as ours? Um, and how did they look after themselves? Have we got any idea?
1: Yeah. Well, let's begin. Let's begin just kind of thinking about their anatomy. Yeah, mm. and thinking about maybe how their, their anatomy um, differs from us. Because although you know, I really think we we need to we need to begin by focusing on their similarities. And mm. you know, the fact that they are, are, are so human in so many ways, there are clear differences. And these would be immediate upon meeting uh, a Neanderthal were one to appear today. Um, and first of all is their overall kind of robustness. When we look at our bones, um, our bones, uh, the, 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 um, the size of the wall, their proportions in terms of length, to thickness, we have relatively gracile bones. We're relatively light bone. Neanderthals are really quite powerfully built. Um, And that power and that strength comes with a height that on average is is less than the average height for for modern humans on the planet today. I mean, for, for, for males, five foot six, five foot seven. For females, five foot, maybe five foot two. So not like crazily out of modern human range, but on the relatively small size. But then when you combine that slight stature change, with that incredible robustness, you get a body proportion that's, you know, out of the modern human range. There's no one who has a Neanderthal body proportion on the planet today. Can they,
0: like, wrestle bears and stuff? Are they that robust? Or well, is it I think most
1: humans would, <laughs> would, would struggle wrestling a bear. But, you know, this, this body proportion has been invoked in the past as being part of an adaption to... Um, to robust encounters with, with other animals. Mm. So, so, so this, this robust uh, body pattern was kind of combined by Eric Trinkhouse and, and uh, Berger in the, in the 1990s to come up with a hypothesis that's really persisted in the popular imagination about Neanderthals, that um, the place that you're getting injuries on the bodies when compared to modern populations of, of workers in different classes of, of industry like construction and the army it, it matched one one group which was rodeo riders um no and, 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 you know and this is what i kind of grew up with as a student the ideas of neanderthals hanging on to the back of a of a horse stabbing it as it was trying to throw it throw it off but i mean that hasn't really uh, sort of passed the test of time. And in fact, those same injury uh, locations actually match quite closely with interpersonal um, violence. So maybe it's just a result of, you know, quite, uh, quite competitive societies in a way or, or quite, you know, stressful, um, st- stres- stressful social situations. But there's no doubt about it, that robustness gives them, a degree of adaptation to uh, yeah competitive competitive close encounters with, with animals, and we know that their weaponry, even though it has capabilities to, for being thrown, and uh, Anamika Milks's recent work um, has shown that Neanderthal spears, you know, would fly, would be effective as long-distance weapons. They're also very effective at thrusting um, up close with with other animals so uh, ambushing um, animals oh, like a bayonet yeah yeah and in fact um you know her experiment she worked with the uh uk defense academy um at shrivenham um near uh, near swindon and so worked with people who'd been trained in close combat who who you know done basic training you know working with with soldiers Whereas previous experiments on, on what could these spheres do had largely been done with students or academics, who, as you can imagine, probably weren't quite as handy with a... with Pretty a, much a hung over and stoned. I, I was yeah.
0: going to ask,
1: with <laughs> or on? Huh?
0: With or on students and academics?
1: No, sorry, with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, healthcare then... Um, do we have evidence of them, I don't know like Fixing broken bones or, or Looking after each other or is it just like Well that guy's broken his leg, we just leave him to die I don't, I don't know, can you tell I don't know, I just I see a new <laughs> session brewing here <laughs> To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight (laughs) loss.
1: One thing with with, uh, um, Neanderthals, and we may talk about it later on, is Neanderthal people buried each other in holes in the ground, in graves, which is wonderful because this is a way that you create a sample of fossils. The reason we haven't got fossils from older hominins is you haven't got, you haven't got them being buried. Now, From the sample of buried Neanderthals that we find, we find that a lot of them do have evidence of healed fractures. Um, And this is amazing, okay? Because not only are they um, (laughs) surviving, these fractures, because these are completely healed fractures, nothing to do with their death at all. Um, These fractures rarely show any sign of infection, which would finish them off without antibiotics. And they're usually quite well healed which suggests probably, if not, you know, splints, su- su- suggests some idea of setting and resting a bone when, when, it, when it's being fixed. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we'd have a whole range of, you know, really, really poor, poor heels. Um, further than that, you know, some of these individuals are relatively old. Um, for all Ice Age humans, whether our species of Neanderthals, making it into your thir- um, 40s is, is old, is, is pretty good. Um, you know, that's that you're, you're you're pretty much old by your mid 40s, and most graves are showing people towards that kind of end of their life or very young people, which is exactly how it should be in a population um, that sort of knows largely how to look after itself, who are kind of you know con- controlled over over things like medicine and healthcare. It's harder to care for the very young. It's harder to care for the old. Mid midlife people tend to be you know relatively healthy but these uh, some of these older people like uh, um Shanidar 1 very famous skeleton excavated in the the 1960s by Ralph Selecki and his team um Shanidar 1 was an aged individual but his his life it was a male skeleton showed that he had um, uh, an injury to an eye orbit so he probably had um, impaired um, vision he had uh, uh, effectively a disease of the, of the ear that looks very close to the condition of swimmer's ear today and there may have been hearing problems there um he had uh, you know difficulty potentially in, in walking but the most important thing was that he had um, what appeared to be quite a deformed uh, right arm that may have undergone an amputation at some point you know maybe it had been very badly injured maybe it had been you know, effectively, uh, you know, a birth abnormality and it, it become a problem, but appeared to be subject to some kind of surgery. Now, the fact that someone with a series of physical challenges, you know, was making it into old age and then being cared for, you know, in death and placed in a grave. This was the grave, incidentally, where it was originally claimed there was flowers put in the grave, which transformed how people thought about Neanderthals at the time, in the late 1960s, um, but probably isn't true because there's burrowing rodents that could have brought these flowers down. But the flowers aside, this old man cared for in life, maybe undergoing some kind of Stone Age surgery, was also cared for in, in death. Um, Other hints, you know, we we see, as I mentioned earlier, plant remains turning up in, in, you know, Neanderthal sites where the plant conditions are are good and also getting trapped in the dental calculus, the tartar, that builds up on, on their teeth. You're getting pollen and tiny fragments of plant remains there. And amongst the plants that they're eating, there are, of course, species that we now know have medicinal properties like poplar is a kind of a uh, uh, has a slight anesthetic effect it was found at alcedron on a on an individual who had teeth cavities so maybe chewing poplar seeds or gum for for you know an anesthetic effect but we can't entirely be sure but put everything together um and it really seems as if they knew about caring for each other and they knew about you know, degrees of uh, caring for trauma, caring for injury, and uh, that care extended into death, which um, you know, I find you know in- incredibly compelling. Inventions, everybody loves an invention. So, what kind of things can we attribute to Neanderthal people? So let's have a let's have a think about um, this point in time where we have so you mentioned
0: fire didn't you like that it would come and go maybe and be invented more than once
1: yeah so if you've got inventions if you've got discoveries of of technology appearing in a small population and that population gets wiped out the invention does too. so it's really important to think about these things at, at, at a bigger scale and we have to think about our own species and what our own species is doing evolving at broadly the same time in in africa because Innovations that we see in Europe, we also see emerging in Africa. And sometimes it's hard to know whether they emerged in Europe and spread to Africa or the other way, or whether they just emerged independently. And it's a really important research question for Paleolithic archaeologists to understand, you know, can, can things emerge looking really similar in different parts of the world broadly at the same time? I doubt it, I probably, there's probably some movement there. But what, what did Neanderthals go through? Well, one of the first things we see populations um, uh, around the same time Neanderthals are emerging doing is working with stone in a different way. So now we need to think about stone technology. And one thing that Neanderthal populations can do, same as modern human populations at the same time, is remove stone flakes from a block of flint of a predetermined size and shape. They can get a, st- a stone, they know exactly what they want to get from it, and they work it in a really methodical way. They work one face, they work the other face. They set up one end so it's of the right size and shape that then, after all of this preparation, that might take a few minutes, they remove a single flake off it, and that flake can be turned into a spear point a skin processing tool, a wood processing tool. Now, it's one of those things that I was mentioning earlier that makes us think they must have language because the number of conceptual stages there, the number of uh, kind of geometric concepts that you've got to have to remove that requires some kind of cognitive framework that language would give you. But this is an innovation that we see Neanderthal populations and modern human populations emerging around the same time, 400,000, 300,000, and then maturing you know, into a technique for making beautiful flakes of a predetermined size and shape. And that technique is named after a Paris suburb where it was first discovered, and it's called Lavalwa technique. And a lot of the language that we, we use to describe stone technology and Neanderthal behavior ends up being French because of the pioneering work Undertaken by French archaeologists, you know, in the 19th and 20th century.
0: Outside of simply surviving, mm-hmm. do we have evidence of art and beautification and self-beautification, music, anything? Or are they just literally staying alive?
1: Yeah. So again, this is this is like one of the most important questions because alongside innovation of technology which which is an adaptation in a way to the environment and and doing things more efficiently and minimizing risk and transforming your environment thinking about how they transform themselves and how they expressed society identity self-identity because these are things that we think of as being very very modern these are things that we think of as being very human so when did begin We've got an archaeological record that's very difficult to read, but one of the exciting things we see with Neanderthal archaeology is the emergence of coloured uh, ore and, and, uh, and, and stone that you find in the natural landscape, iron oxides that occur naturally as kind of clays or blocks of sandstone that, if mixed with water, create paint. You know, they're natural pigments that are the basis for you know lots of uh, lots of colour today: red, ochre, the burnt sienna, umber, you know reds and yellows. Um, now these are exactly the same ore uh, and, 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 and sorry, same same minerals that we find being used as paint in the later painted caves uh, of, of the Upper Paleolithic that are being used in Southeast Asia from 40, 43,000 years ago to do. Paintings of animals, paintings of figures. Now, we really haven't got that for Neanderthal populations, but we certainly find these pigments turning up on their sites as big blobs of of colour. There's a few dated cave, uh, um, not paintings in the sense of, you know, we can say there's a deer, but sort of blobs and potential handprints. That are dated to a time when there were Neanderthals around. So there's uh, there's there's painting going going on. There's coloration, and we have to think: what else are they coloring? Are they coloring their skin? Are they putting on you know face paint? Are they dyeing their skins? Are they creating you know red reddish and yellow skins? If you've got this paint and you can imbibe the world and you can imbibe yourself with decoration, in terms of adorning themselves. Um, and transforming themselves and you know part of that is beautification but there's a lot else that can go on there because that's all about signaling people dress in a particular way people present themselves in a particular way to um, signal to signal maybe to those close to you although usually that's not so important but also to signal to people you know further away people who are, um outside of your group people who you might encounter less uh, less commonly where you need to present your identity and who you are and we get some indications that Neanderthals might be engaging in in that kind of behavior a site called Krapina, um, in Croatia a whole bunch of white uh, um, Whitetail Eagle Claws that have been modified with with notches that might allow some kind of you know leather or um or thread binding to create some kind of necklace or attach them to clothing had been found and a study carried out by Clive Finlayson uh, reviewing bone collections across lots of different Neanderthal sites documented the increased number of birds of prey and corvids amongst these bone collections. And those bones weren't bits of bone that had really nice meat on them. Crow meat is your thing. No, they were wings and tail bones, the things that had the feathers. And then, you know, you put these things together, you know, eagle claws, feathers, body paint, and probably quite complicated clothing. And suddenly Neanderthal people, emerge from that kind of cave person uh, you know uh, you know completely shaggy hair no grooming just a pelt over them into potentially quite encoded quite individual quite identifiable you know humans you know with with uh augmented by eagle feathers and raptor feathers and, and body paint Maybe not just, all the time. Maybe just assumed that
0: they were naked.
1: Yeah. No, they almost certainly probably would have almost certainly died very yeah quickly. Um, we are adapted for really warm, you know, tropical grasslands. Our deeper evolutionary history going back beyond one point five million years, two million years before the first wave of our our uh, you know human family moving out of Africa we'd lost all our body hair uh, entirely out uh, the entire evolutionary direction was about getting rid of heat, about sweating, about getting quite tall, maybe keeping hair on our head to stop the sun, you know, overcooking you know, our, our brains. But other than that, all about cooling down. Then when populations first moved out of Africa, um, we don't see them going into Northern latitudes. We don't see them coming into Europe except for very tiny points in time for Neanderthals and the species that came before them, um, a couple of species before them, we think they must've had clothes. It's the mm-hmm. only way you were going to survive. Yeah. On a summer's day, it's fine, but even to survive autumn and spring. So yeah, yeah, really, you know, not needle and thread clothing, you know, not like the really tailored um, You know, ultra cold weather clothing that maybe you get with modern humans. You know, in the in the Upper Paleolithic from from 35,000 years onwards. But and here's some really here's some really lovely stuff. Recently, and here's an amazing uh, innovation invention. Um, a particular type of bone tool has been discovered. Um, at two um Neanderthal sites, both less than um 100,000 years old. And they are ribs that have been worn down in a particular way on their end. They've been worn down by rubbing backwards and forwards over something that's really soft. Now, we don't have to look very far to find those tools today, because in modern leatherworking, ribs are still used by artisan craftspeople. And the study was actually uh, taken place with the artisans who work for Hermes, the, the French fashion house, and it's about polishing and burnishing leather. So not only all the processing of the skin to remove the fat, to remove the hair, to kind of you know, create a relatively smooth, supple waterproof surface, but Neanderthal people seem to have been going further and polishing that leather until it was smooth and waterproof. So we can add to the, uh, to the feathers and the eagle claws, you know, unpolished, um, maybe red shiny um you know waterproof clothing which
0: that's mad yeah, yeah. so it, there's mad. not so clothing isn't born out of shame then if that's what you're saying it's it's a survival
1: well got no idea what their actual attitude might have been to yeah the nudity but yeah it's 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 absolutely necessary if they're in, if they're in one of their, you know, their, one of their home bases, we think they can make shelters out of, you know, wood, and, and there's evidence for that, and windbreaks, and enclosed. They can light a fire. You can get that enclosed space to be really warm. Clothing won't be necessary at that point in time. But going out, you know, exposure, getting wet, we find in Neanderthal people not only in. Cool conditions and relatively Mediterranean conditions, but they would also be living in environments that we have on the west coast of Europe today, where for you know six months of the year it's pouring with rain, and you, you know you just can't survive without clothing in in northern Eurasia. So we're quite interested in this. You wanted to tell us about Neanderthal people and what they achieved adapting to the Ice Age world. Yeah, yeah. Um so i think that's the that's the thing that myself and my colleagues have always taken away from studying the people is that we see them as incredible survivors you know in, incredible adapting to a whole range of different environments again and again and again you know in in a, in a world that's constantly changing so when it gets really cold you know they have to move their entire lives over generations because these things aren't happening quickly but they have to change and adapt to move with the animals and move further south and then they can spread out a hundred thousand years later we can see these pulses and they're constantly adapting to woodland environments mediterranean environments mountain environments you know coastal environments so you know saying anything about neanderthal people is just the same as saying something about modern humans they are so diverse they would have looked diverse as as well we can see in their genetic makeup that there's you know subpopulations of neanderthal people with with different uh, potentially different coloring you know different hair coloring maybe different you know shades of skin coloring so they had regional populations we can see a kind of a mapping of that in terms of how they made their own tools um which has no relation to function. So work done by Karen Rubens and publishing also with Becky Rag Sykes have been looking at different shapes and, and uh, ways of making uh, meat knives. And these are Neanderthals, you know, 60,000 years ago, relatively recent. And in Britain and northern France, they're very different to how they make them in central France or Eastern, uh, east of the Rhine, where you get kind of asymmetrical ones. There's no reason for this. They're all doing the same thing. They're all great meat knives. So there's one conclusion. um, And it's something we pick up earlier with different styles, that these things are cultural, that they're doing these things because that's how they've been taught. That's how they do it on this side of this river. And the people on the other side of the river, they do it a different way. And they dress it a different way, probably. And maybe they speak in a different way. And so populations... Have identities and they have cultures. And even though this record is very uh, fragmentary and it's very impoverished and it's very difficult to read, the fact that we can see glimpses of these different identities and that they have culture, I think is one of the most, one of the most uh, compelling things that makes them really human, makes them understandable.
0: Um, and you work specifically, your area is behaviours, isn't it? What kind of things are you finding? You consider them to be human, don't you?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's difficult to say where we would draw the divine what what is human, what isn't human. I mean, we've got uh, Homo uh, habilis going back to 2.7 million years ago. And Homo habilis is probably, you know, exhibiting... a a relatively small proportion of these complex behaviours that we're seeing in in Neanderthal populations. But Neanderthals are so close to what our own population is doing through evolutionary time. And in fact, the first modern humans to arrive in Europe, say from 45,000 years ago, it's very hard in most cases to see them doing anything different. It's not as if they suddenly turned up with an entirely new innovative culture, and around that point in time, it's very hard to know exactly you know, who's making what, and uh, you know, who, you know, who, who, who is responsible for, for a particular collection of artifacts, unless you've got the fossil material there. So yeah, I see them as, as completely human. But what's exciting is it's a different type of human. Um, they would have, there would have been differences in the way their brain was organized. There would have been differences in their perception of the world. Their eyes are bigger. Than, than ours, you know, they, they are, and the part of their brain, right at the back of the brain, that in both uh, Neanderthal people and in ourselves processes what you see in the world, theirs is bigger. They've got more brain processing power to, to process what they can see. Um, Lewis Pierce has um, suggested that this is about processing stuff in low light conditions. So maybe they were better you know, at, at dusk and at dawn at, at seeing things. So they saw the world differently. They would have thought differently. They would have had different ways of interacting with the world, but they're still human. And uh, given that you know, we uh, uh, you know, live in a world with a lot of variety within one human species, I think it's a really exciting thought experiment. To think about a world in which, and a point in time, go back hundred thousand years, there's five different species of humans on the planet that we that we know of. And if you were a modern human, uh, you know, maybe you know, moving with your group through part of Eurasia, you might encounter Neanderthal people. You might encounter the poorly understood um, Denisovan people, and there might even be remnants of more archaic old human species, um, you know, surviving on in parts of Europe and Africa as well. So that's an amazing world to imagine. The million dollar question
0: that we all want to know. Yeah. Why aren't they around today?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd like to know that. And uh, <sighs> when I first was learning about uh, about this subject um, as as, a, as an undergraduate um, in in the 90s, we had what we thought was a really clear idea because of studies that have been undertaken on mitochondrial DNA. This is the DNA that passes down the maternal line, and uh, it was very clear that uh, you know looking at Neanderthals and comparing them to modern humans, you know modern humans everywhere just had you know potentially. One lineage of mitochondrial DNA going back to a common ancestor in Africa at some point, point in time. And I can remember in the '80s, you know hearing about the mitochondrial Eve, you know this, uh, this uh, small population, if not an individual, from which um, modern humans uh, went out. And uh, there seemed to be no admixture, even though sometimes anatomical remains were found, like the Larga Velo child that might indicate a degree of hybridization. The genetic evidence seemed, uh, seemed you know, really set on the subject. So it was a complete paradigm shift when, what, 10 years ago? Maybe, maybe not much more than that. Svante pambo's uh, sequencing of the Neanderthal genome and comparison with modern humans showed that in populations outside of sub-Saharan Africa or parts of sub-Saharan Africa had small amounts very small amounts of neanderthal dna within them um and also in some places the dna of this other populations um the denisovans and sometimes in hints of uh, uh you know other other lineages now at that point when you start to say what happened to neanderthal people and we can see that tiny albeit tiny trace of neanderthal genetic makeup within ourselves The word extinction has to be something that's slightly nuanced. Certainly after 40,000 years ago, it's hard to find anatomical remains that show Neanderthal features. They seem to have disappeared as a recognizable population. The types of tools they made replaced by very different tools. But this doesn't happen overnight. This happens over thousands of years, a potential coexistence between modern humans and Neanderthal people within Eurasia. And there's potentially movement of ideas. We see Neanderthals trying to make, well, succeeding in making tools in slightly different ways around this time. Some people see this as them picking up ideas off modern humans that they're encountering. Um, others see it as being a completely independent in innovation. But maybe, maybe all these scenarios are possible in different places and different times. We're so used to thinking, you know, in historical terms. You know, if this was a, if this was a history, um, if this was how we used to thinking of, of things, we'd see this as being something that took place over a few decades or a few centuries, you know, especially within our recent colonial history of a, you know, one population moving out into other parts of the world and replacing or competing with other populations. But this is a story in Europe that's going on for thousands of years and maybe is happening in a series, a series of waves. So Neanderthals have a lot of time to, in places, get out-competed, pushed away, marginalised, encountering new pathogens, um, you know, new diseases they've maybe never come across and been weakened in that way. Um, but there's also scope for um, connection, for exchange of information and exchange of DNA and, and interbreeding occurring in in. All sorts of different scenarios, you know, but there is definitely movement of uh, genetic material from one population to another, and that means that there could be a degree of absorption. So, you know, I still go back to my picture I painted of Neanderthals sitting out there in these relatively isolated small groups. Modern humans, not the first modern humans to come into to Europe, but definitely by the time you get to cultures like the um, after 40,000 years ago, where you get, you know, similar ways of making tools found from the Near East all the way through into, into Western Europe, potentially more connection material from the coast, ending up inland networks, connectivity, shared ideas. And Neanderthals probably came meshed within these networks and sometimes maybe off-footed by them. And then slowly, over thousands of years, we got the replacement of one population um by another
0: um this has been absolutely brilliant and definitely in the timescales you're talking about it definitely bears more resemblance to like we had steve brissarton talking about the evolution and the rise of the dinosaurs that yeah there's more I mean, re- resemblance to that than it does to us trying to understand the last 200 years of history um if people are as excited as i am by what you've been talking about um give us a couple of books about early man or about Neanderthals that they can get hold of and um, where they can find out more.
1: Yeah, I think um, probably the place to begin is not just beginning straight with, with, uh, with Neanderthal people, but getting an idea of where Neanderthals sit within um, human evolution. And uh, Chris Stringer and Peter Andrews complete world of human evolution is still a relatively current, good textbook to go for. Uh, warning any book you read you know after a few months is going to be out of date (laughs) because this is a very fast moving field you know so you know you have to keep fluid about it a good book about um neanderthal people but i'm going to suggest one that isn't out right at the moment um dr becky rag sykes um is writing a new exciting up-to-date uh Uh, examination of neanderthals a new book it's coming out soon we can share share a link to where you'll be able to find it yeah wait a while and go for the most up-to-date version on the neanderthals that you can get a book that isn't even out yet and uh she'd be a brilliant person to to invite back on
0: matt thanks so much for coming on and blowing our minds um and taking us outside of our usual remit of the last 10,000 years of history, Uh, what a great way to start our prehistory content. And you're going to link us up with some of your colleagues and some of the people you've been mentioning as well so that we can uh, add some more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's thousands of years to deal with that.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Join us tomorrow and Hussain Kamali will be with us to talk all about his incredible book, which is a history of Islam in 21 women. It's just outstanding. The stories are incredible. I had so much fun recording with him. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement.
1: I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.